This is Entrepreneurs The Playbook, where each week I bring you some of the greatest athletes, celebrities, and entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional playbook to success. Welcome to The Playbook. I'm David Meltzer, and I am so excited. I have waited to meet this extraordinary author and a person. He's Robert Greene. He's the author of seven different New York Times bestselling books, and he's releasing a power edition, a special power edition of one of my favorite books, The 48 Laws of Power. Welcome to The Playbook, Robert. Thanks for having me, David. My pleasure. I'm honored to be here. It's so interesting because I am a student of philosophy and I'm a student of history. And the reason I love philosophy and history is human nature never changes. Uh, The external circumstances certainly do and the speed in which the outcomes arise certainly do. Uh, But you have created a book uh, taking essential laws from philosophy and history that are probably more uh, powerful, uh, more meaningful today than ever. Uh, And why did you decide on its 25th anniversary after selling over 4 million copies to create a special power edition of what is most, uh, one of the most impactful books that resonates with me? Well, um, I had a packager who I worked with on my first three books, a very brilliant man who changed the course of my life named Joost Elfers, a Dutchman. He basically discovered me uh, and gave me a chance to write my first book, The 48 Laws of Power. And he's a great designer. He has a very amazing visual sense. He designed the cover of The 48 Laws and the layout on the inside. Anyway, we got our minds together about this 25th anniversary and wanted to sort of celebrate it. And his idea was to create a special edition, something that was unique, because the book industry, quite frankly, has become so cookie cutter, so corporate. They used to produce like books as objects that were kind of beautiful. And now they're just there's no attention to detail, no care about it. And so Yost came up with this idea. I can't take credit for it where he looked at books, because he's very interested in the history of books from the 18th century. He discovered that they had this way of printing the book so that the sides of it, the sides of the pages, when you flip through them, they would create an image, you know, much like those kind of cards that you flip through and they make some movement, right? And he got very excited about this and he studied and he learned how they did it. And so he created basically what you'll see. So we have a, a, a vegan leather cover, kind of looks like the Bible. And he created a logo for it, for the 48 on the cover. And that's all you see is the 48. But when you flip the sides of the page and they've kind of gold leafed on the side, if you flip in one direction, you see an image of me, more or less as a young man about the time when the book was written. And if you flip in the other direction, you see an image of Niccolo Machiavelli. Um, and it's very weird. It's it's very surreal. And uh, I think it's very impressive, very powerful. And the idea was to create something kind of classic, the way books used to be. And so it's it's a, a, a limited edition. We're printing some 20,000 copies, and that'll be it. So it'll be a collector's item. And it's been out for a few weeks now. So I encourage people out there who like who like, who are fans of the book and want to collect it to go out and get it. Well, I certainly will go out and get it. And 
I have one question, you know, with the 3,000 years of history of power uh, that are in the book and the range of uh, acknowledgement that is existing in the book is from Kissinger to one of my favorite entrepreneurs of all time, P.T. Barnum. Um, why did you and uh, your editor and publisher choose Machiavelli to be the counter image to you as a young man? Well, um, Machiavelli was kind of the guiding spirit behind the 48 Laws of Power. Um, you know, he has a way of looking at the world that, um, you know, I classify as amoral. That word is kind of loaded. But the idea behind it is that you look at the world not through the lens of what you want to see, not how things ought to be, but how things actually are. He's the first philosopher really in history, to kind of look at, examine events, particularly political events through that lens and say, it's not about good or evil, it's about power. And so for instance, he would analyze in The Prince, which is his most famous book, he would analyze the various maneuvers of the Pope who was in the Borgia family, um, not as something about Christianity, but as politics, as if he's trying to gain power. And the Vatican at that time in, in the 16th, early 16th century was one of the most powerful forces in Italy. You know, it was an empire essentially. So he was analyzing power politics. He was looking at what are the maneuvers that people make, not what they say, but what they do. He called this their effective truth. The effective truth is not the words that they present to kind of justify their behavior but the actual consequences of their actions. I use that lens, that idea of the effective truth of how to look at people maneuvering like pieces on a chessboard, as opposed to paying attention to all their fancy words. And so he is sort of the guiding spirit behind the book. So it's very appropriate that his image is there. Yeah, it certainly is. And one of the synergies that you and I have is it seems as if through our careers as mine has journeyed from the pre-chasm internet selling legal research in 1992 to the exit uh, up into Silicon Valley with Thomson Reuters and raising hundreds of millions of dollars to running Samsung to Lee Steinberg to sports marketing to now wow. TV shows, podcasts, and movies. I thought I had a, wow. a weird hunger, a weird hunger for different experiences uh, my daughter's at Madison, Wisconsin, by the way. All right. Yeah, go Badgers. Love <laughs> go it. Go Badgers. Exactly. I'm a graduate everything. <laughs> it's such a great school. Construction yeah. worker, tour guide, teacher, translator, editor, Hollywood movie writer. Uh, how much of that hunger for different experiences, weird experiences, uh, have you drawn from the 48 uh, figures in which we explore in your book? Well, um, I have a motto in life, and my motto is everything is material. So even I had a lot of bad jobs. And, you know, my wife and I once counted, there's like about 60, at least 60, probably more. And um, some of them were not very good jobs. Some of them were quite miserable, particularly Hollywood. I did not like working in Hollywood, and I wasn't very successful at it. But I had a lot of other jobs. And normally... Um, you know, you would, you would, I would get kind of depressed because I didn't really have any success until I wrote the 48 Laws of Power. 
But my attitude in life was, as a writer, you want to have experiences. You want to see what people are like. People are your material. They're the characters that you write about, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, psychology, human behavior, sociology. In order to do that, I believe you have to have personal experience. There are a lot of writers out there who write from their head, who write abstract theories, particularly in academia. And to me, they have no connection to reality. I wanted to be deeply grounded in reality, the reality of everyday people. And so I had jobs, like I worked in a detective agency. I was a tour guide, as you mentioned. I taught English in Spain. I worked in a hotel in Paris. Jobs that weren't very glamorous, but gave me a real insight to the lives of, to what people suffer, to have the power games that people play. I witnessed a lot of these power games from a lowly position because I never really had much power until I wrote the book. And so having all of these different angles of experience in Europe, in Los Angeles, in New York, in every kind of job you can imagine, you know, including construction work, as you mentioned, um, I saw all of the different kinds of power games that people play. I saw it in every culture, um, at least in the West, and I saw it in all different ages, all generations, all periods of time. It gave me experience that served as kind of the soil for the 48 laws of power. So to give you an example, law number one is never outshine the master. And the idea is that if you try so hard to impress the person above you, your boss, he or she might get insecure. They might think that you're better than he or she or that you're after their job. And insecurity is a very, very bad thing to trigger in anybody. They will do things and they won't tell you why they're doing it. They'll fire you or they'll marginalize you, but they'll justify it with some other reason. And I give a historical example to illustrate it in the court of Louis XIV, where his finance minister, Nicolas Fouquet, wants to impress the king so he'll elevate him to the position of prime minister. And he throws the most lavish party perhaps ever in history at his chateau. It was absolutely spectacular. Fireworks, plays, performances, music, you name it. And the king was there and he saw how everybody was going up to Fouquet and thanking him for what this amazing party. In other words, all of the attention was going to Fouquet and not to the king. And the king had his insecurities. And so he felt that maybe Fouquet, people thought Fouquet was better than the king. The next day he arrests Fouquet and puts him in prison for the rest of his life under trumped up charges of, of absconding with money, of, of, of government funds. Now I'm writing that story, but in the back of my mind, is a similar incident that happened to me, where I'm working for a television show, where I'm researching stories that are gonna be produced for the show. And basically you're graded or, or you're looked at for how many of your research items actually get produced. I had by far the highest percentage. And lo and behold, like Nicolas Fouquet, I wasn't thrown in prison, thank God, but I was fired. <laughs> I was fired and I couldn't figure out why. And later I kind of pieced the puzzle, pieces of the puzzle together. I had outshone the master. So in the foreground are these stories from history, but in the background are a lot of my own experiences. And that eclectic background certainly creates the common denominator to 
those stories and those lessons and the law. One of the other high powers uh, that really intrigued me in the book was one that I find in sports and entertainment and I find in sales, uh, which is the law of seduction and understanding how we seduce or people or attract them. Uh, what is your perspective on the law of seduction and where does it fall within the ranks of the power uh, or, or laws of power? Well, when I wrote the 48 laws, my idea was that um, we live in a time where appearances are extremely important. That has become even more prevalent now in the era of social media. You have to at least appear to be decent and fair and democratic and, you know, a good, warm person. Of course, maybe behind the scenes, you're not like that and you're playing hardball, but you have to play the game of appearances. Being brutal, pushing people around, being overtly manipulative, being angry will not work. It's very unpowerful. The most powerful people create circumstances where they get other people to do what they want without any resentment. And that is the power of seduction, right? And so in the 48 laws, I call it soft power. In the 48 laws, I have stories of seduction because seduction is a very, very critical element in power. It's the, I consider it the highest form of power. And so I wrote my second book, The Art of Seduction, in which I took that idea and created an entire book around it. And the idea is, is that human beings that you deal with on any level are normally resistant to your influence. We all live, and this has gotten much, much worse by the year 2023. We all live where there's so many intruders in our minds, in our private lives, people coming at us asking for money, people wanting jobs, blah, 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 advertisers wanting to sell their products. We've built up all of these defenses, all of these walls to keep all of that stuff out because it's very annoying and it's, it's very intrusive. And so people are naturally resistant to you. And you, can, you won't believe how many people don't understand that. They have an idea. They want to sell their book. They want to sell their movie project. They want to sell their product. And they're in inside their own heads. And they're thinking about how wonderful their ideas, which they've concocted here inside. And they're not actually thinking deeply about the other person. They are not aware that everyone out there is naturally resistant and defensive. And so before you can even begin to influence them or move them or sell whatever you're trying to sell, you have to first lower their defenses. That is always, always, always your first move. And in order to lower their defenses, you have to understand what those defenses are. Each individual has sort of different circumstances. They have different insecurities. They have different things that will trigger those defense, those walls that'll go up. You have to be focused on that. And then you have to come up with a plan of how you can get them to, to lower that and to fall under your spell and not, their first impulse will not be, I have to resist this, this person is trying to do something to me. So when you're trying to sell something, if it's obvious that you're trying to sell it, it's not going to work because people don't like, they don't like to feel that they are not in control of it. They want to feel that they are buying it because they want to, not because somebody tried to persuade them. So things like word of mouth, creating viral effects, where you disappear, where you're not the one selling it, but other people are buying it and it makes you excited. 
that is seduction. And I give an example of what I say appear to be an object of desire. And this isn't actually, in the art of seduction, I apply it to politics, to social situations, and to advertising, and obviously to sexual relationships. And in the realm of dating, um, if you know that the person that you that you're interested in or is interested in you has had a lot of boyfriends or girlfriends is popular, that increases your interest in them. It makes them appear to be an object of desire. And I compare it to if you're looking for a restaurant to eat at one night and you're walking through the streets of New York and you pass by a restaurant and there's like one couple in there and they're eating and it's seven o'clock at night and they don't look very happy, you're not likely to go in there. You pass another restaurant and it's full of people and they're laughing and they're drinking. Even though the food might not be good, you're more tempted to go in there because they've created this idea that it's an object of desire. We want what other people want. These are basic principles of psychology about how to sell or influence others, that human desire is viral. And so, you know, it's absolutely essential if you want degrees of power in this world to understand seduction as a leader, as a boss in your group, as someone trying to market something to an audience on and on and on. And to finish up along the lines of seduction and attraction is love. And some people have said the highest power is love. Seduction is up there as a high power, but uh, we as entrepreneurs have heard Many, many times, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Uh, what relationship do you have with love yourself? And how do you portray or articulate that relationship throughout your books? Well, um, I don't specifically um, talk about love, although in the art of seduction, I say that the game is to make the other person essentially fall in love with you. Because when you fall in love with someone, your, your normal defenses go down and you let that other person into your mind, you become vulnerable. And once that happens, you're easily seduced. Um, I talk about it in Mastery, in my fifth book, Mastery, um, in the form of your own career and what you're going to choose to do. And I, I'm trying to show you the reader how you can reach a level of mastery in whatever field. And uh, it's like the highest form of power of career-wise, work-wise. It's a sense of, I can, I don't even have to think, I, ideas are at my fingertip. It's what they call in German, Fingerspitzengefühl. You have a fingertip feel for things, how they're going to proceed. It's, it's just a wonderful feeling. None of it will happen. You won't reach the level of creativity you won't reach the level of mastery. You won't ever be good if you don't have a deep emotional connection to what the field you have chosen. You can call it love. You can call it other words. Like I, I call it a primal connection. It's like when you were a child and certain subjects excited you so much that you just had to do them, right? You were so attracted to them. It was a natural impulse, right? And yes, it's a, it's a form of love. And when you are in love with what you do, the, what happens to the human brain is you learn at a much higher rate 
And learning is the key to be to get, attaining true skill levels in this world and to be reaching that level of creativity and mastery. So when you actually are excited by something, you pay much deeper attention. And when you pay deeper attention, you learn quicker. And when you learn quicker, you learn skills more quickly. And when you learn skills in a intense, small, narrow time frame like six months, as opposed to 20 years, you become that that skill level becomes internalized and is much more powerful. So the degree of emotional connection to your work is a critical critical factor in your level of success. And so when you're young, the game is about figuring that out. And if you're 20, 22, which is a very critical age in life, and you have no idea where you're going, it's it's not hopeless, but you're going to probably end up on, in a wrong course. You're going to choose careers just because for the money, for instance, which is a very common mistake people make. And you're not connected to it. A common scenario is people who become lawyers because there's money in it, because their parents tell them that's a good job to have. I'm not nothing against lawyers. There are people who are naturally attracted to it. But a lot of people go to law school for the wrong reasons. And then you end up on this course where you're 30 years old. You're not really engaged. You're not really learning anymore. You're just kind of doing it. You're just kind of making money. You're tuning out. And then things can go really bad for you. And you reach the age of 40 and you're like, what have I done with my life? I'm not excited by it. And you've stopped learning. And it's a very depressing dynamic that can occur. So being emotionally connected to your work is absolutely critical. And then I talked in my new book that I'm currently writing now, this is the very first time, and it's interesting that you asked that, where I actually write a chapter devoted to the subject of love. And um, I'm, this is more about love between two people, basically, but it is, it is also about the phenomenon of love and attraction and kind of, and what it is about to me is the ability to be vulnerable. And, what I find a problem in, in the world today is a lot of people are very, very afraid of being vulnerable. They're very afraid of being hurt by anything. They want to have this kind of armor around them in which nothing can affect them emotionally or disturb them, right? They're so sensitive. You can't grow in life. You can't have anything wonderful happen to you if you're not willing to be hurt, if you're not willing to suffer, if you're not willing to let some pain into your life, because it's inevitable that it happens, it makes you stronger. And the element of love is about letting someone into your life and letting go of your defenses and allowing yourself to be vulnerable, even if it means being hurt in the long run, right? And so if you allow that to happen, then the whole game, then love can actually reach this deeper and deeper and deeper level where the person continues to excite you, you become more and more vulnerable, more open to their spirit, and it can reach this, this highest form that I call, in, in my book, Sublime Love. And so uh, I actually do, it's the first time I've addressed, so it's interesting that you brought that up. Well, I'm glad that I did. <clears throat> and growing up with my Jewish mother, who her favorite statement was doctor, lawyer, or failure, and thank goodness I realized <laughs> after I took the bar uh, that I'm a oh. recovering lawyer, but I have many friends at 55 uh, that didn't uh, 
believe me when I said you can do other things with a law degree oh, other go. than practice law and I'm yeah. blessed but I will say the lessons of love from you has reminded me that if we love consistently and we love persistently and we love long enough it will tell us all its secrets whether it's a relationship whether it's our occupation or our activity we get paid for if we love consistently and persistently and long enough it will give us the cheat codes, uh, the secrets to life. And it's something that uh, you may be writing about now, but I have also extracted from uh, your extraordinary ability to communicate and the messaging that you've had in all your books, uh, whether intentional or unintentional, you love what you do and you've loved what you've done for over 25 years. Uh, and it obviously has taught you all of its secrets and I'm glad it has. And I want to thank you. I look forward to reading the power edition and buying my own collector's item that my grandchildren can retire on it when it's worth uh, <laughs> so much. Uh, <laughs> and they create the crypto coin of it or whatever they do. Yeah, right. I am blessed here on Entrepreneurs, the Playbook with a mentor from afar, Robert Green, the incredible author of seven New York Times bestselling books. Check out his collector's edition, the special power edition of the 48 Laws of Power. Thank you for joining me, Robert Green. Thank you so much for having me, David. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Amazing interview. This is David Meltzer with Entrepreneurs, The Playbook.